Anatos. Four, three, two, one, zero. Oedipus is a race for death. Uh, thank you for joining us on this lovely Tuesday as the Losing Guattari Quarantine Collective continues to read the Losing Guattari's Anti-Oedipus. Uh, we are in the middle of page 359, as you can hear, we are just past the Oedipus is a race for death section, uh, which we spent a lot of time on yesterday uh, discussing this countdown. But uh, anything major before we bounce forward? I know we did a bunch of announcements yesterday, and I think most of that stuff is still accurate for today. So unless there's any major new stuff, I'd love to uh, dive forward. Uh, but for now, we're going to dive into the uh, continued reading. <clears throat> Since the 19th century, the study of mental illnesses and madness has remained the prisoner of the familial postulate and its correlates. The personological correlate and the egoit postulate. A postulate moique. I have no idea if I'm saying that right. What is that word, French people? Moique? I don't know what it refers to. The postulate moique. I'm, I'm assuming egoic. We have seen, following Foucault, how 19th century psychiatry had conceived of the family as both cause and judge of the illness, and the closed asylum as an artificial family charged with internalizing guilt with instituting responsibility, enveloping madness no less than its cure in a father-child relationship everywhere present. In this respect, far from breaking with psychiatry, psychoanalysis transported its requirements outside the asylum walls and first imposed a certain free, intensive, asthmal use of the family that seemed particularly suited to what was isolated as the neuroses. But, the resistance of the psychoses on the one hand, and the necessity for taking into account a social etiology on the other hand, has led psychiatrists and psychoanalysts to redeploy under open conditions the order of an extended family, which is still believed to possess the secret of the illness as well as its cure. After the family has been internalized in Oedipus, Oedipus is externalized in the symbolic order, in the institutional order, in the community order, sectorial order, etc. This progression contains a constant of all modern attempts at reform, and if this tendency appears in its most naive form in community psychiatry aimed at adjustment, quote, the therapeutic return to the family, end quote, to the identity of persons and the integrity of the ego, the whole works being blessed by successful castration in a sacred triangular form, same tendency in more disguised forms is at work in other trends. It is not by chance that Lacan's symbolic order has been diverted, utilized for grounding a structural Oedipus applicable to psychosis, and for extending the familial coordinates beyond their real and even imaginary domain. It is not by chance that institutional analysis has difficulty in maintaining a position against the reconstitution of artificial families where the symbolic order, embodied in the institution, reforms group Oedipuses, all the lethal characteristics of the subjugated group. Uh, very short summary here. Hey, look, Guattari hates asylums and the way things go. Yay. All right, Guattari, let's keep talking. This is what this feels like to me. I don't know about you guys. Yeah, I'm thinking about kind of like this is almost like a remark about like, uh, it's almost like interpolation, but in the sense of like, both the symbolic, so like Lacan's uh, idea of the symbolic now um, 
is made to posit an Oedipus, but in the same way, like they look at Foucault and how Foucault is um, understanding that the family is both cause and judge of the illness. So, right, like uh, the family for, for Foucault is there, at least in their reading of Foucault, is like a closed asylum charged with internalizing guilt and instituting responsibility. Is uh, anyone else have any thoughts on this paragraph or should I just continue on? Happy to just. What is more, anti-psychiatry has sought the secret of a casualty at once social and schizophrenic in the redeployed families. Causality. God damn it. I'm gonna... What is more, anti-psychiatry has sought the secret of a causality at once social and schizophrenic in the redeployed families. This is perhaps where the mystification appears most clearly, because anti-psychiatry, by certain of its aspects, was the most suited to break with the traditional familial reference. What does one see, in fact, in the American familialist studies pursued by anti-psychiatrists? Completely ordinary families are baptized as schizophrenogenic, as well as completely ordinary familial mechanisms and an ordinary familial logic, i.e. neuroticizing the at worst. In so-called schizophrenic familial monographs, everyone easily recognizes his own daddy, his own mommy. For example, Bateson's double impasse or double bind, where is there a father who doesn't simultaneously transmit the two contradictory injunctions? Let's be friends, son. I'm the best friend you've got, and watch out, son. Don't treat me like your buddies. There is nothing there with which to make a schizophrenic. There is nothing there with which to make a schizophrenic. We have seen in this sense that the double impasse in no way defined a specific schizophrenogenic mechanism, but merely characterized Oedipus in the whole of its extension. If there is a veritable impasse, a veritable contradiction, it is the one into which the researcher himself is led when he claims to assign schizophrenogenic social mechanisms and at the same time to discover them within the order of the family which both social production and the schizophrenic process escape. This contradiction is perhaps especially perceptible in Lang, because he is the most revolutionary of the antipsychiatrists. At the very moment, he breaks with psychiatric practice, undertakes assigning a veritable social genesis to psychosis, and calls for a continuation of the voyage as a process and for a dissolution of the normal ego. He falls back into the worst familialist, personological and egoic postulates, so that the remedies invoked are no more than a sincere corroboration among parents, a recognition of the real person, a discovery of the true ego or self as in Martin Buber. Even more than the hostility of traditional authorities, perhaps this is the source of the actual failure of the antipsychiatric undertakings of their co-option for the benefit of adaptational forms of familial psychotherapy and of community psychiatry and of lang's own retreat to the orient and is it not a contradiction on another level but analogous when someone attempting to hasten the teaching of lacan place it back on a familial and personological axis where lacan assigns the the cause of desire and a non-human object heterogeneous to the person, below the minimum conditions of identity, escaping the intersubjective coordinates as well as the world of meanings. Um, 
So I'm going to actually just ask about this paragraph. I don't have a background in antipsychiatry, and I don't have a lot of understanding of Lang and uh, things he's discussing. Does anyone want to give us, uh, does anyone here have that by chance? I don't have the background, but based on reading this book, we know they have a criticism of antipsychiatry for uh, seeming to break with oedipalization, seeming to break with familialization, right? getting away from uh, personage, getting away from um, uh, from the familial as the model and as the diagram, right? But uh, they, they've made it clear that even though it seems that way, they fall right back into it, right? So their point of departure becomes their point of arrival all over again. Is there a distinction here to be made with schizophrenic and schizophrenogenic? What's the addition of the gen genics? Is that saying uh it's sort of reintegrated into the genetic like family is that all it's saying or does it mean more than that schizophrenogenic so like the term is like the schizophrenogenic mother the mother who uh gives the child to completely opposing injunctions and that causes like a fragmentation of personality so it's just like genesis of schizophrenia <clears throat> and then yeah, I mean, schizophrenia is this, like, so first the the label is dementia precox, right? So it's just a gradually, a gradual fragmentation of uh, the personality and, like, a complete loosening of associations. Um, and, uh, but to speak about what's being spoken about here, um, so instead of it being like a disillusion of the ego for Lacan, schizophrenia or psychosis, uh, Lacan takes the stance that it's actually getting trapped in the narcissistic economy and uh, not being instantiated into the symbolic. <clears throat> so, um, so you mistake, uh, so you, you replace uh, laws or, um, I don't know, digital digitalisms like one and zero with uh imaginary content with the like the harmonious unity that images appear to what's rejected in the symbolic returns in the real then as a sort of haunting <clears throat> so then you hear your uh your injunctions of guilt and whatnot as persecutory delusions and, but i can't really speak to lying i haven't read any of that um yeah, I, I don't know all those those people, but uh, if we want to go back to the text um, and try to understand the logic is saying, first of all, uh, this move from the psychiatric um, understanding of mental illness to an anti-psychiatric one can be uh, reaffirmed by the researcher in the sense that re the researcher can, by looking at a family, find hints of schizophrenia and instead of placing them into the um, individual, it places them into the family. So I will quote a great American uh, hardcore intellectual, Mike Muir from uh, Suicidal Tendencies, when he says, I'm not crazy, you're the one that's crazy, you're driving me crazy. That's this whole movement saying that, <laughs> that the family is the crazy one. So the family is the schizophrenic element and you know it produces individuals. So there's, there's this, this displacement from the individual to the first form of the collective, which is the family. And this, but but looking at a family, that what they say, it's like it's like written like that. They're completely normal, but you make them schizophrenic by finding hints 
of schizophrenia within uh, what is being said into the semiotic or like the discursive level of um, into interviews and stuff like this. Yeah, for sure. And it's never supposed that like Oedipus is the problem and that the symptoms seen aren't actually attempts at breaking out of Oedipus, right? Mm -hmm. And so to that point, if we walk this back in the previous paragraph, we're seeing how even ant the anti-psychiatry movement is here functioning uh, as a means of this kind of like uh, transmission of interpolation, right? So uh, they're making, just like Roger said, even anti-psychiatry is functioning to create um, this kind of Oedipal problem uh, to write to like kind of actualize it and give it to people. Mm -hmm. So they uh, give this big, sorry, sorry, I'm just going to, it's it's another joke, but you know, I need to go there. Uh, they're making this double bin uh, element of saying, you know, I'm your father, but I'm also your friend. So don't, don't, don't treat me like your friend. And that's not enough to drive somebody insane or, you know, create schizophrenia to someone. And that's the same as BDSM or, you know, sex games that you're being called daddy, but you're not really daddy. And I don't think that anybody is losing their mind because they're being called daddy into that role. So like it's and that, you know, they, they make um, this affirmation saying that's really benign stuff and you cannot deduct a whole structure of um mental health or mental illness based on some of those statements in two specific situations. So can I ask about the double bind again? I'm trying to remember because they say we've, we've seen that the double impasse in no way defined a specific schizophrenogenic mechanism, but merely characterized Oedipus in the whole of this extension. I seem to remember an earlier section where they dedicated a long time to the double bind. And I wonder just because it's the main example they use here, if it would help to like re-summarize that. So with the double bind, you get an exclusive disjunction. And so in that way, you have like a, a way of like stasis created by like, you can't go here, you can't go there, right? You're damned if you do, damned if you don't. So that's part of like the paranoiac distribution. So like one of the, one of the things they're doing here, and it, it is kind of a joke in some sense, is like they're talking about clinical schizophrenia and then contrasting it with their understanding of schizophrenia, which is obviously a ways different. And how that what, what's actually happening here is the creation of paranoiac investments. But they aren't they aren't saying that like the exclusive or uh, isn't a problem, right? They're just saying it's not a problem of the family. So like as I'm reading that bit about Basin, so they right. For example, Bateson's so-called double impasse or double bind, where is there a father who doesn't simultaneously transmit the two contradictory injunctions? Let's be friends, son. I'm the best friend you've got. And watch out, son. Don't treat me like one of your buddies. There is nothing there with which to make a schizophrenic. So this is exactly what Roger is saying. But if you walk this out too, like, um, it's like in terms of like a double bind in that they're taking a representation and trying to get a, a kind of paranoiac investment here, I think. Mm -hmm. Right. So they're trying to kind of like actualize this kind of thing or rather to, uh, to generate it, right? To re to reproduce the representation. Lou, how far off would I be to try and bring the the Bergsonian idea of uh, immobilized, uh, you know, time into this? Do you think I'm just way off base? Um, probably not. But I've also not been listening. Oh, okay, never mind. But I don't know where they're gonna go with this statement of how you know you cannot. 
you cannot believe everything you say as having effects and you cannot uh, take words or a statement as something that that produces that much. But like in 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 research, that's what we do. And in the clinical environment, that's what we do also. We say, oh, you did the fruitance that there's something there. I mean, you know, like that's that's a mode of analysis, but there's many other relations that produces the, the subject or the person that is in front of us. And uh, they're, they're probably going to touch on that on how, you know, we need to consider. I think I think I think one of those two guys has wrote a book about three ecologies. I think they're, you know, they have an ecological kind of thinking that creates uh, schizophrenia or paranoid investment instead of just like, you know, catching a few phrases here and there. Oh, right. Yeah, I agree with you. It's, it's, you know, they're talking about the use of power here. Uh, I don't know if somebody wants to say something about uh, the difference between the anti-psychiatry and Lacan and, you know, how they recast uh, alternative theories of the self and of mental illness. And by the way of methodologies, we can uh, actually void the those theories of their real impacts or their real statements. Long live the Ndimbu. Or if we followed the detailed account by the ethnologist Turner, the Ndimbu doctor alone has been able to treat Oedipus as an appearance, a decor, and to go back to the unconscious libidinal investments of the social field. Oedipal familialism, even and especially in its most modern forms, makes impossible the discovery of what one claims nevertheless to be searching for today. Schizophrenic Social Production in the first place, it is futile to affirm that the family expresses more profound social contradictions, for one confers on it a value as microcosm, gives it the role of a necessary relay for the transformation of social into mental alienation. What is more, one acts as if the libido did not directly invest the social contradictions as such, and in order to awaken, needed these contradictions translated according to the family code. By that very fact, one has already substituted a familial causation or expression for social production, and finds oneself back within the category of idealist psychiatry. Whatever one's stake in all of this, society is thereby justified. All that remains to contest with it are vague considerations on the sick nature of the family, or more generally still, considerations on the modern way of life. One has therefore glossed over what is essential, that society is schizophrenizing at the level of its infrastructure, its mode of production, most precise capitalist economic circuits, and that the libido invests this social field, not in a form where it would be expressed and translated by means of a family microcosm, but in the form where it causes its non-familial breaks and flows, invested as such, to enter into the family. Hence, that the familial investments are always a result of socio-desiring libidinal investments, which alone are primary. Finally, that mental alienation refers directly to these investments, and is no less social than social alienation, which refers for its part to the pre-conscious investments of interest. So I'd like to... Oh, sorry, Roger, please go. No, 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 please go. Well, I'd like to understand what they're saying here at the end more, uh, because like a phenomena I saw time and time again was like a kid coming into psychiatric crisis and he seemed to have like 
like no history of any issues at all. Um, like fine through high school and all of it. And then only after, uh, leaving the house and going off to college or something, they start like deteriorating. Like they can't remember anything. Um, they can't form coherent sentences or things like this. And it's not like a physiological thing. Um, but this part where they're talking about, um, and that the libido invests the social field not in a form where it could be expressed and translated by means of a family microcosm, but in the form where it causes its non-familial breaks and flows, invested as such to enter into the family, hence that the familial investments are always a result of the socio-desiring libidinal investments, which alone are primary. Finally, that mental alienation refers directly to these investments and is no less social than social alienation, which refers to the part to the pre-conscious investments of interest. Uh, so it's like this social alienation is is um, is accentuated in the familial relationship. Is that what it is? Um, if if we want to go back to what uh, we discussed about earlier, there's like different levels, and you know it's uh, like the the individual is always the canvas on which you know the desiring machine of the social is being painted. Um, the error that they're trying to uh, point at is that you know we start with the family, the family as the start of the uh, the pialization. But the, the the problem is stronger than that, and it goes in through through the whole social field. So um, it's 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 a matter of like a starting point. We need to start always desire as a collective thing within the social field, and it passes through the family as any other domain. So it you know it's the family will intensify or create this, but like it's something that is you know uh, it pre-exists the family. Yeah, that's exactly it. And so like the family will then, right, so this is what they're getting at in terms of like representation of that, right? The nuclear family will then be used to explain things like institutions, right? So instead of understanding things in relation to the social and as the social, like the familial being part of the social, we're understanding the social as being, being familial and like the familial as though it's kind of like the microcosm of the social in that way. Right, so that's like the way like they, they seem to think psychoanalysis will take it. And it's the same thing with capitalism, you know, when they were saying that Uspain and how capitalism is working and capitalism is working outside of our families and it probably has more impacts on us, you know, like if we take uh, monoparental families, you know, and you, you throw capitalism there, you throw race, you throw gender and all those factors, they will have probably more they, they they are coming from the collective you know and those those problems are systemic and they will pass through the family but the problem is not the family is how um, the family is being produced as one field and now the you know the individuals are being produced into that one field but it's it's like a chain of production there's always a series from the collective to the individual well, I suppose, too, you run the risk. I mean, even just saying, like, oh, the family is a microcosm of this social thing. It, you almost end up incidentalizing, trivializing it, because it almost sounds as though you're saying uh, these two separate processes, which don't actually intersect, happen to look like each other, or forms of them 
can be found in one another, but they're kind of fundamentally separate. And if they are, then you kind of, you rapidly go down the slippery slope of like what I think they, in the previous section, they were critiquing with um, you know, regular psychoanalysis that like when Freud is talking about how it, you need to like de-sublimate and repress sexuality in order to enter the so social. And it's, these are all kind of completely different realms rather than thinking of them as sort of like they're, they're, all of it, they're different building blocks on this giant gradation from the molecular design machines to body without organs to molar investments and all that stuff. So like, as soon as you say this microcosm looks like this macrocosm, it seems like you almost initiate the, the turning gears of sim, um, symbolic representation because you're kind of having to explain why does this look like this? Well, it, it mimics that by looking like Oedipus and looking like this rather than thinking about it, like you said, in terms of production. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's always a series, you know, everything is connected and ontologically out of representation. We see like objects and persons and cars and roads and whatever else, you know, I'm bringing back to my own things, but uh, we see all of this as being separated, but ontologically they're all connected to one another, you know? And, and if we don't follow this ontological type of relationship and connections between things and how they create, how they are, emergent ecologies you know we don't understand anything so we, we will take the house you know one house is differentiated from the other one family is differentiated from the other but at the same time if we start from the collective it's we have a completely different take and we see series we see chains you know i i want to kind of go back and i don't know if you've been trying to hit on it i'm i'm I, i'm i'm trying to go back to what ken was asking about um which is the uh, the idea that uh, children live inside of their sort of familialized, oedipalized home, and then uh, once they get outside of that, let's say, go to college um, or whatever, roomspringa, if we want to just say something that comes to mind. At that point, they tend to uh, flip out and, and go wild. And that... So the, the the question is like that process that that broken process that Ken's bringing up. At, at what point are they talking? Like, is is this in relation to that? Because that it is. It's how how I read this. Let me let me let me try to explain this. Sorry, my brain's not working super well today. Um, what they're talking about here is that uh, the way that anti psychiatry and and, and uh, an, an old school like psychoanalysis does this is they assume instead of a person actually being directly invested as a child in the social norms that they're invested in the parental version of it and the symbolic relationship that they have with say their father when it comes to the father laying down the law they're not directly invested in the law their their argument is the opposite that actually a child is directly invested in those things granted the father's filtering it but it's a direct investment in the social layer am i misreading that I think that's actually, I think I agree with you there because what they're talking about um, and where they're taking that argument is that, so we're looking, sorry, in the previous paragraph, we're talking about looking for the schizophrenogenetic, if I've said that correctly, right? And so like they they open up this paragraph by talking about how Oedipal familialism is a way of saying you're looking for that, but actually producing something else. So like um, where they write, one has therefore glossed over what is essential, that society is schizophrenizing at the level of its infrastructure, its mode of production, its most precise capitalist economic circuits. So right there we're seeing that 
what you engage with in society, what objects engage with, everything, like Roger's saying, that's connected in this kind of ecological way in capitalism has this deterritorializing and decoding aspect to it. Right. And so in that way, you have um, you have a whole level of things changing in that manner. And in that sense, it's not like um, they're saying this is not like something that happens because of the familial or is produced within the familial. They're talking about uh, this interrelationship that is uh, conditioned by the socius of capital here. So then to Ken's question, uh, what would explain in that sense the child who gets to the real world realizes that has been invested in the laws. I've known numbers of these uh, who deeply religious family, deeply law-abiding family, deeply strict family, uh, and then they get to the real world and it turns out they were invested, they were, they break that because they're not necessarily invested in the father, they're invested in the laws, but the laws don't exist in the same way. Like that's, is it, Ken, is that what your question is? If I can add on this as we're trying to decipher, um, I would say, you know, it's a different set of ecology, you know, it's because you're saying, oh, you know, they're in the family and then they end up in the real world. The family is pretty real also. It's everything is real. It's just different configuration, different ecologies. And you're always, you know, the individual is always within the ecology and a part of the individual is found in the relationships of this of a specific ecologies. So within the family, sometimes, uh, well, most of the times, the, the, there's a part of yourself that is being cast into others. So there's patterns, you know, so you're being produced and reproduced through certain patterns that, you know, are well established. The moment you get out of the family, these ecologies and the patterns, they kind of, the, the ecologies are changing and the patterns are fading away. So there's a, mo mo a moment of readaptation that you need to have or you know, rehabilitation. And it doesn't always happen if without the necessary support. So that's why there's going to be uh, a degradation of the, uh, of the condition of the person. Same thing happened with disability because, you know, you're within the family, you're receiving a lot of support and stuff. And there's governmental support to a certain age at 18, you know, they cut the funding or at 22, like, and then everything starts to go down because, you know, you're being, uh, individualized way more, you know, you need to be more autonomous to actually become this rational subject into the market, make your choices, calculate everything. And, you know, because your family was, um, caring for that part for you, sometimes it's really difficult to actually make this jump from the family to, uh, the, 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 the autonomous kind of like adulthood. Uh, Ken, but I don't know if the, I, I, know I do want to make sure, Ken, did you, are we are we talking even about what you tried to bring up? Then I haven't had a chance yeah. to respond. No, I mean this all makes a lot of sense, and it's sort of what I was thinking. But, um, but it's strange because it's not like, like as I mean, what you see is this person had fine grades; they were able to take care of themselves fine, and it's and it's I don't know. It is almost like they can't figure out how to situate themselves within the productions and but the productions in the home are beyond the home at the same time right um well, i, I maybe, let me, let me just, one of the one of the sentences one of the things roger was talking about there uh, kind of clicked for me on this one because 
uh, what they're talking about here is that society is this, the line society is schizophrenizing at the level of its infrastructure, its mode of production. Uh, the, the, the processes within the society itself are schizophrenizing. So if a child is coming from a uh, deeply Oedipal family situation that's uh, on the fascistic side of things, uh, what they've actually invested in is not the father's fascistic side or any of those things, but instead they've invested into processes and structure. And the structure and processes in the real world are not taut and hard and difficult and paranoid. They're instead they're fluid and crazy and a little schizo and a little out there as the process of things moves. So it's their investment in things that perhaps don't even exist at the societal level, which I think is an interesting sort of way to talk about it. Because where they say uh, the actual place that things get invested, uh, the familial investments are always a result of social desiring libidinal investments, uh, which happen uh, sort of on the other side of the family, where the uh, in the form where it causes non-familial breaks and flows. So outside of the family, right on the other side is essentially where you actually make the investment. So I, I kind of agree with you, but it's not so much that there, there's no like family and then like real world. So like their point is like the social and the familial are contingent, right? There is no familial without the social. The so, what, what's, what's happening in terms of the family and those investments those are informed by social investments, right? They say, um, hence that the familial investments are always a result of the socio-desiring libidinal investments, which alone are primary. So, right, like when this person goes to college, they're bringing investments with them. In fact, the investments are producing the whole, are part of the whole production process. But this is like, a, this is like why the, th this is all horizontal, it's not like they're in simply leaving one world and going to the other. They're, you know, they're being re-territorialized and re, uh, there's recoding happening in that sense, which it, it's light step in, in a sense, it's like stepping in and out of a world. But the point is more so that it's, it's horizontally happening. It's like you're leaving, I don't know, Detroit and going to Royal Oak, right? Like there's, there's a, a progression happening that way. And in that way, the infrastructure is changing, and that's changing you. The circuits for desire are changing, and that's changing how you're produced. And that you are all in relation to all of this, right? So, like, when they're talking about, like, the egoistic postulate, it's not as though you exist in isolation of all these things, or simply that the, fam uh, the familial would even be able to exist in isolation. All of this is contingent upon uh, the connections and breaks with itself, it, it's tough because in the U.S. at least we do think of it like, oh yeah, there's like this real world that you get to when you're 18, right? <laughs> we we do have that sort of mentality taught to us from a very young age that basically family and school is to prepare you for the real world instead of the reality that it is. exactly. I blame the graduate. A really nice way of putting it. Thank you, John. Uh, any last notes before I move on to the next significantly long paragraph here? Not only does one thereby fail to correctly evaluate social production in its pathogenic nature, but secondly, one also fails to understand the schizophrenic process in its relationship with the schizophrenic as a sick person. For one attempts to neuroticize everything, and doubtless one thus conforms to the family's mission, which is to produce neurotics by means of oedipalization, a system of impasses, its delegated psychic repression. 
without which social repression would never find docile and resigned subjects and would not succeed in choking off Flo's lines of escape. We don't feel any need to attach the slightest importance to psychoanal psychoanalysis's claim to cure neurosis, since for it, curing consists of an infinite maintenance, an infinite resignation, an accession to desire by way of castration, and of the establishment of conditions where the subject is able to spread, to pass the sickness to his offspring, rather than dying celibate, impotent, masturbatory. Again, perhaps it will be discovered that the only incurable is the neurotic, whence interminable psychoanalysis. It is a cause for self-congratulation when one succeeds in transforming a schizo into a paranoiac or a neurotic. Such transformation perhaps entails many misunderstandings, for the schizo is the one who escapes all Oedipal, familial, and personological references. I'll no longer say me, I'll no longer say daddy-mommy, and he keeps his word. Now, the question is, first, if that is what makes him ill, or if, on the contrary, that it is the schizophrenic process, which is not an illness, not a breakdown, but a breakthrough, however distressing and adventurous, breaking through the wall or the limit separating us from desiring production, causing the flows of desire to circulate. Lang's importance lies in the fact that, starting from certain intuitions that remained ambiguous in Jasper's, he was able to indicate the incredible scope of this voyage, with the result that schizoanalysis would come to nothing if it did not add its positive tasks to the constant destructive task to pass the constructive task of disintegrating the normal ego. Lawrence, Miller, and then Lang were able to demonstrate this in a profound way. It is certain that neither men nor women are clearly defined personalities, but rather vibrations, flows, schizes, and knots. The ego refers to personological coordinates from which it results. Persons in their turn refer to familial coordinates, and we shall see what the familial constellation refers to in order to produce individuals in its turn. The task of schizoanalysis is that of tirelessly taking apart egos and their presuppositions, liberating the prepersonal singularities they enclose and repress, mobilizing the flows they would be capable of transmitting, receiving, or intercepting establishing always further and more sharply the schizes and the breaks well below conditions of identity, and assembling the desiring machines that countersect everyone and group everyone with others. For everyone is a little group, and must live as such, or rather like the Zen tea box broken in a hundred places, whose every crack is repaired with cement made of gold or like the church tile whose every fissure is accentuated by the layers of paint or lime covering it. Contrary of castration, which is unified, molarized, hidden, scarred, unproductive. Schizoanalysis is so named because throughout its entire process of treatment, it schizophrenizes instead of neuroticizing. Like yeah, so that is the weird thing about Lacan's, like, reading Lacan. Because, like, the whole time, it's like he's railing against the imaginary and like totally doing away with any conception of meaning um but then in the end it all depends on like a, a narcissistic core in the end it, it brings you right back into the imaginary identification i understand i don't have a background okay. in anti-psychiatry 
I, I've read, you know, Lawrence Miller, we've talked about Lang, I've read lightly, but a lot of this in this section feels like, like, like Kim was saying, like, I get the Lacan thing, and it's a great point. Uh, I don't have an, enough of a background in these other things that it feels like they're making a critique of. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, let, let's put it into uh, a continuum. So it, we can we can put it into like normal language and understand this. So there's there's two poles, right, on this spectrum. There's the uh, the neurotic on one side and the schizophrenic on the other side. So society, as it works, it wants you to police yourself. So basically, the neurotic is the police of the self. So the, the cure of psychoanalysis would be to make you the police of yourself to make constant corrections eh, to uh, and then you know you meet with the other police which is the psychiatrist and by by being a team of police you work on your 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 impulses and stuff and you try to like actually keep this uh, in check but schizoanalysis moved towards deliberation instead of like creating yourself as like a total hole that is like totally coherent and stuff it just like it, it works with the cracks it works with the the pains it works with the failures within yourself and try to uh, deterioratorialize you in certain in a certain manner to actually allow processes of becoming into like a more molecular form than going towards the molar. Uh, so it's 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 what they're um, what they're saying here is even though what is being considered to be abnormal as the schizophrenic in our society, this is probably where uh, liberation can be found. Yeah, I think you're dead on about that. And so like one of the ways they're, they're making this is right. They're attacking the idea um, that you can treat people as uh, individual egos, right? All with their little individual ids. And it's about regulating that form of desire, right? It's like the typical Freudian model of the unconscious. We saw how in chapter two, they talk about the ego, not in terms of you've got one, I've got one, and everybody's got their story, right? They're talking about it in terms of like, in that third synthesis, when like uh, subjectivity and that happens, when consummation and consumption occurs, how something like an ego is actually moving through the circuitry, right? There's this mutual experience, which is kind of, I, I think, probably how we talk about these things. Right? We talk about perspectives and their connections. We don't really, it's not like we're talking about somebody having a monologue, right? There's a dialogue. And in that sense, there's this, this sense of moving subjectivities. And I mean, maybe it would be helpful to differentiate between like, I don't know, the ego and its functions. And then like what people colloquially understand as ego. So like ego in the sense of identity or I and me and so on and so forth. And then the functions of ego, which are actually like unconscious, like insofar as we are the thing that identifies with the screen, like the function of the ego are those gestalt functions that like fill in gaps for you. Like whenever you see patterns or, um, or like, uh, make uh, a uh, allow for an anamorphic object to have some sort of uh, perspective to it instead of it just being like unadulterated chaos like um, and you know you can see this whenever you have any sort of like crisis event where you start hallucinating or like a fever dream 
or something like this. Like that's when the ego is now like not really performing its function. Now you're seeing like the walls breathing and like there are no consistent edges or lines to anything. Like the ego puts bounds to perception through like weird implicit rules. And like Gestalt psychology tries to describe all this. Yeah, the ego's job is to regulate the id, right? And in that sense, you have a, a kind of neurotic, right? Because the id will say hungry. So right, we see a desire, the id's desiring uh, a, a release for the tension of, of hunger. And the ego's job is to say, right, oh, no, id, you don't want the cardboard, you want the breast, right? You want what can produce milk. So right, like they, they do this contrast of this earlier on where like, that's the, right, that's like uh, the neurotic is someone who is ego at least works to like regulate their id, whereas the psychotic is someone whose ego is regulated by the id, right? And so in that way, they're talking about like, just like you're saying, like the, uh, the, the exclusivity of the me in this sense, and also like the way in which psychoanalysis is engaging the unconscious and how desire functions. Yeah, but I, I guess the point that I'm trying to make is that like, if you like leave Freud's id ego super ego thing out of the box and sort of just pay attention to perceptual phenomena um the ego is the thing responsible for the perception of figure and ground and stuff like that like it's not just about um i mean of course desire influences your perceptions to cer to a certain extent um uh, but it's not, it's, there's also like a weird abstract geometrical imprinting quality to it. What makes the schizophrenic ill since the cause of the illness is not schizophrenia as a process? What transforms the breakthrough into a breakdown? It is the constrained arrest of the process or its continuation in the void or the way in which it is forced to take itself as a goal. We have seen in this sense how social production produced the sick schizo constructed on decoded flows that constitute its profound tendency or its absolute limit, capitalism is constantly counteracting this tendency, exorcising this limit by substituting internal relative limits for it that it can reproduce on an ever-expanding scale, or an axiomatic of flows, that subjects this tendency to the harshest forms of despotism and repression. It is in this sense that contradic contradiction itself Ugh, sorry, it is in this sense that contradiction installs itself not only at the level of the flows that traverse the social field, but at the level of their libidinal investments, which form the flow's constituent parts, between the paranoiac reconstruction of the Erstadt and the positive schizophrenic lines of escape. Thereafter, three possibilities emerge. First, process is arrested. The limit of desiring production is displaced, travestied, and now passes over into the edible sub-aggregate. So the schizo is effectively neuroticized, and it is this neuroticization that constitutes his illness. Or in any case, neuroticization precedes neurosis, the latter being the result of the former. Or second, the schizo resists, resists neuroticization and oedipalization. Even, as the, even the use of modern resources, the pure analytic scene, the symbolic phallus, structural foreclosure, and the name of the father do not succeed in taking on him. 
Here again, in these modern resources, what a strange use is made of Lacan's discoveries. Lacan, who was the first, on the contrary, to schizophrenize the analytic field. In this second case, the process, confronted with the neuroticization that it resists, but that suffices to block it on all sides, is led to take itself as an end. A psychotic is produced, who escapes the delegated repression, properly speaking, only to take refuge in primal repression. Closing the body without organs around itself, and silencing his desiring machines. Catatonia rather than neurosis. Catatonia rather than Oedipus and castration. But it is still an effect of neuroticization, a counter-effect of one in the same illness. Or the third case. The process sets to turning round in the void. Since it is now a process of deterritorialization, it can no longer search for and create its new land. Confronted with Oedipal re-territorialization, an archaic, residual, ludicrously restricted sphere, it will, it will form still more artificial lands that, barring an accident, accommodate themselves in one way or another to the established order. The pervert. After all, Oedipus was already an artificial sphere, a family, and the resistance to Oedipus, the return to the body without organs, was still an artificial sphere, oh, asylum, so that everything is perversion. But everything is psychosis and paranoia as well, since everything is set in motion by the counterinvestment of the social field that produces the psychotic. Again, everything is neurosis since it is an outcome of the neuroticization that runs counter to the process. Finally, everything is process. Schizophrenia is process, since it is against schizophrenia that everything is measured. Its peculiar trajectory, its neurotic arrests, its perverse continuations in the void, its psychotic finalization. So, oh boy, not to unpack here, right? <laughs> there, there's a ton. Um, so I'm going to skip the first part of this paragraph, and I'm going to dive right into kind of the three uh, possibilities of how a schizophrenic or how the schizophrenic process is neuroticized. There's a lot of there's a lot of those in this uh, paragraph. Um, the the let's let's start with that. So we we've got three of these. The first is that the schizo becomes neuroticized, and in that sort of process, uh, uh, the, the neurotic is created by the limit of desiring production being displaced. Can you say that one more time for me, please? The first, first, we have the schizophrenic process arrested. The limit to desiring production has been displaced, and it passes into the Oedipal subaggregate that neuroticizes the schizo, creates the neurotic. Yeah. Or there's a resistance. Just to keep, I know we're kind of skipping over that first part, but keep in mind, we're talking about what transforms a breakthrough into a breakdown, right? So the schizophrenic breakthrough through the body without organs, as opposed to the breakdown that rebounds it back on upon the sociocies. I'm having sort of a hard time wrapping my head around it. Can someone like play out a, a scenario for me? I think this is pretty relevant to the example you brought up uh, a couple paragraphs ago, where. Um, so this neuroticization process, right? This desiring production is arrested and um, 
turned back into these sort of traps, right? That's the struggle that that kid is going through where, you know, they're finally changed their environment, but they can't connect their desiring production in a meaningful way to a group around them. And they're finding it, you know, difficult to release that libidinal energy and instead the social production is like rebounding on them and that's the sort of like chaos of that process right of re-territorialization and recoding and trying to like release libidinal energy and so it can result in that kid becoming you know neurotic or like maybe the kid you know gets into the next thing which is the like process of desiring production as its own goal which makes the kid a psychotic where desiring production becomes like production of hallucinations and things like that you know, uh, does that help a little yeah that does help um and it's interesting that like uh like psychiatry groups uh psychotic phenomena or or especially for like schizophrenia in two groups like positive and negative phenomena so like hallucinations like auditorial and visual hallucinations uh and tardive dyskinesia are positive phenomena and then you have negative phenomena whereas like um and like that's what i'd see with those people um where like you know they can't they're having a hard time accessing any sort of affect or like their intensities have faded and like it's almost like um like whatever libido is there is muted or something like the flows are are clogged well and if they're using if they're using neurosis in the way that Lacan, because again, they, they made the joke about the knots. Uh, I, I think they're using a lot of this terminology in that sense because uh, Lacan's sort of three mental illness categories were neurosis, perversion, and psychotic. So that's the three. I mean, they're very much coming off of that process. And here it feels like they're saying that uh, the first sort of step is uh, when we have the process of of sort of life, which they call the pendulum swinging back and forth between the two poles, the paranoiac and the schizophrenic, we go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Um, and this process uh, is, is, is generating that libidinal energy. The process at some point becomes arrested uh, because of one reason or another. Uh, and the desiring production becomes displaced. Uh, travestied and now passes into Oedipal subaggregate, so the schizo becomes neuroticized. Uh, or Lacan in that the triangulation, neuroticized is basically. Uh, uh, I'm going to have to say it in a poetic way because I don't actually know if he ever said directly what it was. Ken would probably have a better idea, but it's like lost, uncertain of the world. Uh, that feeling, the neurotic is one who sees the world with a question. Is that close, Ken? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the two categories are like uh, obsessive and then hysteric. The obsessive sort of asks uh, existential questions, and the hysteric asks uh, like sexual identity questions. Yeah. So that because the the process is interrupted, the neurotic comes to exist, um, and that that process right there, that first neuroticization, they're saying is because. When they put a they put a call out to the world, their desiring machines or whatever, uh, it's being arrested and being shoved back into the Oedipal. I would almost think they're they're leaning on saying something along the lines of, 
that uh, because the Oedipal is being done at the pre-individual level, that the desiring production is being halted at that point, and that causes us to have these larger unknowing questions. That again, I think the two that you mentioned, the two sides, are very much uh, of having a question. One is the paranoid, and one is the schizo response. I think they would sort of say that. Um, then the second is that they've got, uh, that the schizo resists the neuroticization, Oedipalization, this sort of second step. Uh, so they somehow they do this, but this makes the psychotic. And um, the, the way psychosis works, um, it's very much, uh, uh, it can, you can probably explain it better than me. My brain's not working. It's, it's the paranoid, the hyper-paranoid reaction. Yeah, I mean, like, all of a sudden, you become, like, the center of everything, and now everything has some sort of reflective meaning towards you. Um, but but that doesn't, like, you can have that sort of paranoiac phenomena, um, and then you can also have auditory and hallucinatory phenomena that aren't, like, paranoiac. Like, you can just hear, like, birds chirping. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm using paranoiac in their sense that they've been using it. The, the, the name of the father, the ability to know everything, the, the belief that reality is kind of waiting to unveil itself to you or that you're able to understand it. That's, the, that's how they've been talking about the paranoiac, whereas the schizophrenic is one who's happy to dive between knowledge and play around and not really play inside of that. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm using, I'm, I'm mixing a lot of terms here, but I'm trying to figure out and talk through sort of what they're trying to say. So the first process is the is the production of the neurotic, which is through desire flows being uh, stymied and then shoved back into edipalization. Second step is if you resist edipalization and resist being stymied, uh, the set then at that point you kind of move into the psychotic, and then the third. Uh, uh, Sorry, where the third case, the process uh, hits the void, your, your, your lines of escape, and they start spinning around inside of there. And at that point, it becomes perversion, where you move into a completely different structure. So there, it feels like they're talking about the three sort of Lacanian... Am I, am I wrong on that, Ken? Well, I think they are, but I think they're also going beyond it, right? Um, because, you know... So if the lines of escape are uh, like correlated with perversion, which I can understand because it's like a perversion of the structure, right? Yes. Um, uh, then that's that's still going to be different than Lacan's perversion because uh, for Lacan, like the perverse subject learns the Oedipal law meticulously um, to uh transgress it but to transgress it in a particular way to humiliate the law and to humiliate little others yes yeah it basically to to turn the law over on itself and laugh at the law it's it's a transgressive or perverse pleasure yeah but i mean the key for the con is that you know there is no greater propagator of the law than the perverse subject it's like um it's like Bates from American Psycho. Or the Republican Party in America. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So it helps, too, to keep in mind how, they're, how these processes are happening, right? So with the first one, you're right about things getting um, going back into the Oedipal subaggregate. But what's happening here to enable that is that the process is seized through the displacement of the body without organs as a limit 
So, right, instead of breaking through the body without organs, which would be the limit of the socius here, right, um, that limit is displaced. And so in that way, desiring production can be collected into the Oedipal, right, instead of moving and passing through the body without organs more directly. Uh, in the second one, right, so like the schizophrenic, it doesn't get Oedipalized in that sense. It doesn't get neuroticized in that same way. Instead, it retreats into the body without organs and the desiring machines, right? The schizophrenic here is quelled or like when they say catatonic, right? Like they're talking about um, like a, 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 not an inertia, not an in inertia, but like an inactivity in a sense. It's just going sort of dormant. And then the third is uh, playing within and around the body without organ, effectively, because we're talking about the, uh, uh, the resistance to Oedipus, the return to the body without organs was still artificial sphere, so that everything becomes perversion. It's uh, everything as psychosis and paranoia as well, since everything is set in motion by counterinvestment of the social field that produces the psychotic. Kind of wrap up around. What a complex paragraph. Jesus. Yeah, in this sense, the, the third one I'm still kind of struggling through, but it looks like what happens is like there's almost like a um, there's almost like a an illusion an illusion an illusion where there's a void here. So in the sense that like with the deterritorialization comes the prospect of a new land or a, re, a reterritorialization. So that sounds like this sounds like the breakthrough, but what's actually taking place is that. Um, there's an artificiality to it that's actually like, um, you know, it's sort of like it appears to be images here. So they write, after all, Oedipus was an, already an artificial sphere of family. And the resistance to Oedipus, the return to the body without organs, was still an artificial sphere of asylum. So that everything is perversion, but everything in psychosis and everything is psychosis and paranoia as well. Since everything is set in motion by the counterinvestment of the social field that produces the psychotic. When they're kind of saying essentially that they generate uh, not their own body without organs, but artificial lands in sort of counterinvestment to the body without organs that exists very, very specifically sort of opposing them. That barring an accident accommodate themselves in one way or another to the established order, the pervert. That's the idea behind them is they basically are creating their own sort of creating an artificial body without organs through how they move about, but it's only in direct sort of countervalence to the established order. Yeah, and in that way, it seems like what appears to be a new land is actually the old land of the Oedipal, right? But in this way, too, it looks like the old land of the Oedipal here as an artificial sphere. It also sounds like they're gesturing toward like uh, you get caught in a representation here. So it's almost like, at least this is how I'm understanding the void here. You, you would appear not to be really doing these connections. The schizophrenic is connecting in that sense. Um, it's connecting with representations, right? With images. And in that sense, the new land is this sort of like a phantasm See, as opposed to being a, an imminent territory. Go ahead, Roger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But this is where, this is what I wanted to propose. Take when you're trying to discuss this. Take real example, real life example. What is the what is a perversion that goes through images? How does you know desire start spinning in circle and not being actualized in back into the social when it actually goes into images? You know, it's it, we have easy answers to this, and it's it's 
if we take correct um, real world example to understand those moments, I think it's easier for us to grasp them. Uh, it's another really long one. Uh, I'm just going to ask because my version fucks this up. Is there no page break on the next? Is there no paragraph break on the next page? Really? Is there no paragraph page break on the next page for everyone? Yes, you are correct. It ends on two on three sixty five. Oh, so we might want to break this one up. My God. Okay. And weirdly, is the same in French. Normally, there's breaks in French where they don't happen in English, but this one is a full going. I will see where uh, I'm going to stop uh, each time. I believe we've found a singular thought. So I may not stop for the rest of the book. I'm not sure. We're going to find out. <laughs> Inasmuch as Oedipus rises out of an application of the entire social field to the finite familial figure, it does not imply just any investment of this field by the libido, but a very particular investment that renders this application possible and necessary. That is why Oedipus seemed to us a paranoiac's idea before being a neurotic's feeling. In fact, the paranoiac investment consists in subordinating molecular desiring production, molar aggregated forms on one surface of the body without organs, enslaving it by that very fact to a form of socius that exercises the function of a full body under determinate conditions. That's a complete thought. I'm stopping there. Um, someone please summarize that to me. The paranoiac investment consists in subordinating molecular design production of the molar aggregate it forms on one surface of the full body without organs, enslaving it by that very fact to a form of socius that exercises the function of a full body under determinate conditions. Yeah, that's, I'm very much reminded of what the, they were talking about with the pre-conscious reactionary investments. Uh, you can still, you can invest in such a way that you form a socius to repress desire. And that's the paranoiac investment. Excellent. Yeah. And so, oh, okay. Works for me. <laughs> yeah, no, that's just great. I'm just, this is a long. The par- uh, by the way, as we're doing this, I invited people from uh, one of the Foucault group because they're asking what is the schizophrenic in Deleuze and Guattari. And I thought, you know, that would be a great time for them to get involved into the group. So we might have new people coming in. We will. No better place to start than the last, cha- last section of the last chapter. <laughs> The paranoiac engineers masses and is continually forming large aggregates, inventing heavy apparatuses for the regimentation and the repression of the desiring machines. Doubtless, it is not hard for him to appear reasonable by appealing to collective interests and goals, reforms to be brought about, sometimes even revolutions to be made. But madness breaks through beneath the reformist investments or the reactionary and fascist investments which assume a reasonable appearance only in the light of the pre-conscious and which animate the strange discourse of an organization of society. Even its language is demented. Listen to a secretary of state, a general, the boss of a firm, a technician. Listen to the great paranoiac den beneath the discourse of reason that speaks for others in the name of the silent majority. The explanation is that beneath pre-conscious goals and interests, a uniquely unconscious investment rises up that embraces a full body for itself, independently of all aims, and a degree of development for itself, independently of all reason. That very degree, and no other, will take another step. 
that very socius and no other, hands off. A disinterested love of the Muller machine, a veritable enjoyment with all the hatred it contains for those who do not submit to the Muller machine. The entire libido is at stake. Stop again there. But, but we have this in every organization. Of and what's interesting, what's interesting in Deleuze and Guattari, one way they write together, they say we've always been multiple. So it's like a multivocal or a multi-voice kind of discourse that they are having. It's not, nothing that is unified. That's why, you know, the reading of Deleuze and Guattari is always a little bit complicated because they don't speak out of one voice. You know, they don't they don't construct this 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 uh, this like collective id through which they talk. So, you know, I think that even their mode of uh, writing is actually counteracting what they're describing right now. Yeah, that's dead on because if, if they were to create one voice, right, that would be to create an exclusion. Uh, any, any other quick things before I continue? <clears throat> but from the point of view of libidinal investment, it is clear that there are few differences between a reformist, a fascist, and sometimes even certain revolutionaries, who are distinguished from one another only in a pre-conscious fashion, but whose unconscious investments are of the same type, even when they do not adopt the same body. We can't go along with Maud Manoni when she sees the first historical act of anti-psychiatry in the 1902 decision granting Judge Schriber his liberty and responsibility, despite the recognized continuation of his delirious ideas. There is room for doubting that the decision would have been the same if Schroeder had been schizophrenic rather than paranoiac, if he had taken himself for a black or a Jew rather than a pure Aryan, if he had not proved himself so competent in the management of his wealth, and if in his delirium he had not displayed a taste for the socius of an already fascizing libidinal investment. As machines of subjugation, the social machines give rise incomparable loves, which are not explained by their interests since interests derive from them instead. At the deepest level of society, there is delirium, because delirium is the investment of a socius as such, beyond goals. And it is not merely the despot's body to which the paranoiac lovingly aspires, the body of capital money as well, or a new revolutionary body, the moment it becomes a form of power and gregariousness. To be possessed by this body, as well as possessing it, to engineer subjugated groups, for which one becomes so many cogs and parts, to insert oneself into the machine, to find there, at last, the enjoyment of the mechanisms that pulverize desire. Such is the paranoiac experience. Oh, this is awesome. It's so we're getting a discussion of the paranoiac, uh, the, parano or the paranoiac process now. Well, yeah, and, and, and we're getting a very specifically, like, the, not just the paranoiac process, but they're expanding very much on that old line they love, which is why do people desire fascism? And that's, mm -hmm. this is just uh, like breaking that out into a long process, but it's a really good one. Uh, what's interesting between the French version and the English version, such as the paranoiac experience is absent from the French version. So there's a statement in the English version that is absent from the, the French one. And, you know, it's the, the key to understand. But also, I think that was not the goal of the authors to actually state something on that. At the end of the such is the paranoiac experience, what you just read at the end, this is not into the French version. Well, there goes my earlier statement. <laughs> Hashtag Roger ruins everything.
Yeah, let's keep moving into the deterioration. Now, Oedipus appears to be a relatively innocent thing, private kind of thing to be treated in an analyst's office. But we ask precisely what type of unconscious social investment Oedipus presupposes, since psychoanalysis does not invent Oedipus. Psychoanalysis is content to live off Oedipus, to develop and promote it, and to give it a marketable medical form. Inasmuch as the paranoiac investment enslaves desiring production, it is very important for it that the limit of this production be displaced, and that it pass to the interior of the socius as a limit between two molar aggregates, the social aggregate of departure and the familial subaggregate of arrival that supposedly corresponds to it such a way that desire is caught in the trap of a familial psychic repression that comes to double the weight of social repression. The paranoiac applies his delirium to the family, and to his own family, but it is, first of all, a delirium of races, ranks, classes, and universal history. In short, Oedipus implies within the unconscious itself an entire reactionary and paranoiac investment of the social field that acts as an Oedipalizing factor, and that can fuel as well as counteract the preconscious investments. From the standpoint of schizoanalysis, the analysis of Oedipus therefore consists in tracing back from the son's confused feelings to the delirious ideas or the lines of investment of the parents, of their internalized representatives and their substitutes. Not in order to attain the whole of a family, which is never more than a locus of application and reproduction, but in order to attain the social and political units of libidinal investment. With the result that all familialist psychoanalysis, with the psychoanalyst at the fore, warrants a schizoanalysis. Only one way to spend time on a couch. Schizoanalyze the psychoanalyst. All right, back to more Oedipus stuff. Uh, and this is, uh, to steal from Muskie, it's spot on, deterritorialization. It, we're deterritorializing territorialization, talking about Oedipus and how it sort of plays inside of how the psychoanalyst treats its patients. Mm -hmm. But psychoanalysis here, right? You're talking about psychoanalysis as like a kind of, um, right? It's a mechanism that uh, is taking a cue in a sense from uh, the social. So it's, it's using Oedipus um, to, to sort of perpetuate itself. So in this sense, it didn't create Oedipus per se. It took Oedipus and it's using itself in a socially, um, in, in, in terms of a social relationship. Is all what I'm saying, right? Psychoanalysis functions to market and, um, you know, to basically sell Oedipus, right? To, to not even just sell Oedipus, but to uh, basically reinforce it. Uh, you can... It, do you need your Oedipus topped up today? Yes, I do, Mr. Psychoanalyst. I'm coming on in for it, the same way I take my car in. Exactly. And in that way, psychoanalysis can be perpetuated. Yep. And in the, in the other sense, like you're saying, the Oedipal can be um, instantiated. This is also, uh, they're once again mentioning uh, this concept of universal history inside of the delirium. And, I mean, it's a point, obviously, that becomes fairly important in other texts of theirs. But, uh, and I know uh, Holland goes deeply on about it, but the the intention is very simple. By by having sort of this Oedipus as this form, this intention uh, of how things need to be, it naturally sort of 
presupposes an entire reality behind it, an entire universal history of uh, ranks and roles and racism. Um, I'm gonna. Oh, just go ahead. You're gonna finish. I'm gonna say something when we're done. Oh, I was gonna say, yeah, and that's part of the paranoiac process, right? Is the passing on to this delirium, where they write, um, the paranoiac applies his delirium to the family and to his own family, but it is first of all a delirium of races, ranks, classes, and universal history. In short, Oedipus implies within the unconscious itself an entire reactionary and paranoiac investment of the social field that acts as an oedipalizing factor and that can fuel as well as counteract the pre-conscious investments. Go ahead, Roger. Um, yeah, I don't remember what it was. I remember having an MP3 of this like maybe like 15 years ago, and it was linked to Deleuze in some way. And when they're saying at the... Um, uh, I'm still into the French version, but... Um, when they say that the you know the only way to spend time on the couch is to schizoanalyze the psychiatrist, um, I had a recording of like a person going into it's a real recording, you know, something that is being recorded in 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 situ, and it's um, it's a person going into a psychiatric uh, office and actually turning the questions around, and then you have the psychiatrist losing it completely, you know. Saying I ask the question, and you know, it becomes like a play of power, and there's a whole reversal of power, and uh, the psychiatrist is asking for mercy and wants to get out, wants to escape. So this this is an interesting thing. I'm tr- I'm gonna try to find it. It's, it might take me a little while, but uh, yeah, it's the complete reversal. So basically, they're following this proposal. Yeah. So in that sense, right, like the the whole process of the psychiatrist and like the traditional psychoanalytic scene is um. It gets re-territorialized, right? Because the goal is not to give. I, I suspect the goal is not to make the the psychiatrist um, into an Oedipal, uh, into Oedipus, right? The goal is to deterritorialize and, and to like, right, to create a line of escape out of that entire scene. Mm-hmm. Let the processes go through the body that tries to copy you. So, and, and you know, instead of like having this this imposition of the Oedipal, you are de-Oedipalizing the the person that acts as a cop. Am I the only one having trouble understanding Roger's mic? No, No. uh, Roger, your your mic's a little garbled. Um, I'm going to dive in because Al Bloom, official, that's the official Al Bloom account in our chat, uh, has uh, brought up a point on the last note uh, on the only one way to spend time on the couch schizoanalyze the psychoanalyst uh, what does this mean uh al bloom official is asking basically uh totally not understanding this are they saying that the uh, analysand has access to deterritorialized flows through schizoanalyzing the psychoanalyst while on the couch uh what do they mean by this to me i think it's more of uh what i always call snarky french shit where they're just being like, hey, uh, this, look at how fucked up psychoanalysis is. Really, what we should be doing is analyzing the analyst. Ah, like, it's kind of like that kind of uh, back and forth, I think, is that last sentence. But I'd love other people's interpretations. I think there actually is a sense of practice there. So, like, right, it's not just critique. It's actually, like, um, it's, it's, it's 
probably really what Roger was just talking about in terms of like, so like you go and you sit on the couch and everything, right? And this is obviously a stand-in for other forms of power, right? But just to take this one instance, right? It schizoanalyzing the psychiatrist in that sense, like you're 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 engaging all the different flows and the the breaks and the stops that are even making the psychoanalysis that's happening that would have taken place possible. So right, like you're you're not just understanding the process, like you're you're actually changing the process in a sense as it's happening. You're creating perhaps more precisely the breakthrough is in this way, it's creating an investment. Yeah. It's not just that this is about like liberating the flows of desire through critique, though. I do think that album has a point that I think Deleuze and Guattari do think you can at least criticize these big, like class kind of investments and liberate the flows of desire that way. Right. If you if you engage in these sort of group projects, but keep them from forming these full bodies and like deliberately or like at least make them be self-conscious about what they're doing, you can sort of maybe that's praxis in line with what they're talking about. And I think that albums, you know, I think that's kind of a legit critique. Maybe that's not exactly the best kind of praxis. But I also think that Jack is right, that there is a material dimension to the way that they're talking about this kind of investment. You can change the structures you're in in terms of how you invest with them. So if that's psychoanalysis or if it's theater, like someone like Artaud, you can see how that that mode of interacting with the structure, there's there's some kind of a material dimension. I'm reminded of the quote like, Okay, yeah, if I have to escape, I'll be I'll get out of here, but I'm gonna bring a gun with me. That that that's kind of where I think I start to see the beginnings of the material side of this. It's not just about critique. Mm-hmm. And this way we're getting critique kind of in terms of a praxis, right? And so like I've I've talked about like Wolf in, in previous sessions where like, you know, the idea is to change the structure, right? Uh what I see Deleuze and Guadalupe getting here is you're actually you're kind of changing the process as it's happening. And in that way, right, like we've talked about how structure will follow, right? So like the molar follows the molecular in a sense, like desiring production and social production work back upon one another. In the same way, right, you're changing how things are being produced almost as they are being produced. And I think that's the trick there, because if you're doing that, right, if you're creating a breakthrough during the process, it's not about trying to change the structure or the pre-conscious so that everything will follow from that because we haven't actually addressed the, the socius and how things are going to be conditioned in that manner. Yeah, totally. And it's, it's tough. It's a tough praxis though. I am very like empathetic with the criticism of it because I, part of me is still, maybe it's just because I have some, I guess they would say reactionary class interests, but like part of me is still like, Oh man, we we are not going to be able to pull off this kind of thing. You know, I want to be critical of it. I want to have a, a like a material praxis in terms of organizing groups and seizing the means of power. But maybe that's not what we're going to get from this book. And maybe their criticisms of that kind of praxis are valid too. Right, especially because like this was my this was part of what I was saying about what Roger's saying too is like doing this doesn't mean that you take. So this is where the ethics comes in. Right. Doing this kind of thing doesn't mean you take over as um, the new priest of Oedipus. Right. It's not necessarily to Oedipalize the psychiatrist. 
you know, you're changing, in a sense, you're taking a closed system and making it open, to put it really simply. I like that. Yeah, it's just, it's, 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 it's a delicate praxis. I like the way you said it. You're taking a closed system and you're making it open instead of a associus that's, you know, this full body repressing, desiring production. You, you, the the praxis is to always find a way to make this full body submit to desiring production. Uh, I just got reminded of a quote we brought up. Oh, but I don't remember the context. It was something like the quote was perfect institutions would immediately dissolve as soon as they saw the imminent, their own imminent, imminent dissolution, something like that as an example of what I'm trying to get at. But ah, it's a bad one. Cause I can't remember what we were talking about when I read that. Mm-hmm. And in that sense too, like this is why like what they're talking about in love and where they're talking about love here in terms of an index, right? So like desire, having this relationship to love is like, desire is in this way like it's connecting with what they've called an index so this is kind of like i think of this kind of in similarity with like foucault's idea of the matrix matrix not not the movie but like matrices right matrices of punishment and that in this sense like desire and engaging with investments right in this way like engaging with um conditionalities within with the informative in that sense because I don't want to make this too Foucaultian. When desire, when desiring production is doing this, it's um, it's being conditioned, and in that sense, it's also uh, I think conditioning love. And so, love here kind of informs it. So if you if you're doing this in, in like what we're talking about in terms of like making a closed system and open one, and that we're talking about um, investments in the sense that like an investment can be made into this process, right? So you're changing love. In this sense, you're affecting love. Um, and in doing so, right, like you're, um, oh, I hope I can find my train of thought. Uh, and in changing these investments, right, like you're allowing for reproduction and generation to be informed by that love going forward. So there's, this is probably what they mean, I think, too, about lines of escape, right? Like in this way, you're affecting how things are generated, how things are produced and reproduced not simply at a structural or molecular level per se. It's not like you're changing like the entire organization in this revolutionary way by making everybody shareholders, right? In this sense, you're doing a different kind of practice here. We have maintained throughout that by dint of their difference in nature with regard to the pre-conscious investments of interest, the unconscious investments of desire had sexuality as an index in their social scope itself. Which does not mean, of course, that one need only invest the poor woman, the maid, or the whore to have revolutionary loves. There are no revolutionary or reactionary loves, which is to say that loves are not defined by their objects any more than by the sources and aims of the desires and the drives. But there are forms of love that are the indices of the reactionary or the revolutionary character of the investment made by the libido, of a social historical or a geographic field from which the loved and desired beings receive their definition. Oedipus is one of these forms, the index of a reactionary investment, and the well-defined figures, the well-identified roles, and clearly distinct persons, in short, the image models of which Lawrence spoke, mother, fiancé, mistress, wife, saint or whore, princess and maid, rich woman and poor woman, are dependents of Oedipus, even in their reversals and their substitutions, 
the very form of these images, their configurations, and the whole of their possible relations are the product of a code, or of a social axiomatic to which the libido addresses itself through them. Persons are simulacra, derived from a social aggregate whose code is unconsciously invested for itself. That is why love and desire exhibit reactionary, or else revolutionary, indices. The latter emerge, on the contrary, as non-figurative indices, where persons give way to decoded flows of desire, lines of vibration, and where the cross-sections of images give way to schizes that constitute singular points, point signs with several dimensions causing flows to circulate rather than canceling them. Non-figurative loves, indices of a revolutionary investment of the social field, and which are neither Oedipal nor pre-Oedipal, since it all amounts to the same thing, but innocently anedipal, and which give the revolutionary the right to say, Oedipus? Never heard of it. Undoing the form of persons and the ego, not in behalf of a pre-Oedipal undifferentiated, but in behalf of anedipal lines of singularities, the desiring machines. For there is indeed a sexual revolution, which does not concern objects, aims, or sources, but only machinic forms or indices. Yeah, I mean, this is this 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 again. It comes back to what I think albums were saying, where this sounds like it sounds like you're gaining access to praxis through critique, but it's not exactly that because of what Jack's saying. Because every investment is social, and so if love becomes these indices of these social machines, then it's not just about how you critique relationships with other people it's about this like active process of engaging and dissolving this these complexes and changing the machinic indices as you go because mm-hmm. this contrasts with the anti-psychiatry movement right they, they do the theoretical critique and everything and yet they their point of departure becomes their point of arrival right so like for i always think about theory and practice i really love the way deleuze explained it well with foucault in that interview where he talks about them as interrelated and so it's not that one produces the other or the other produces um, uh, the latter, right? It's that they're interrelated, they connect with each other, there's different, you know, theory and practices that work like a system of relays in that sense. So theories and practices affect one another and they, they're spread out in this manner. I would like to say, I would like to say one thing. Um, persons are simulacra derived from a social aggregate whose code is unconsciously invested for itself. Um, we have simulacra here, and if we go back to uh, the text that Deleuze wrote about Plato and the simulacra, um, the simulacra is a form of differentiation. That's why we need to understand it like this. So if we translate it into that manner, it says that persons are a a differentiation derived from a social aggregate. So basically, there's the process of correspondence going on here. So the social aggregate exists, and then individuals or persons are uh, elements that are being differentiated from this whole, but they originate from, from it. So the whole process of differentiation cannot be um, cut from the social aggregate. We're always expression of a bigger whole. So, you know, the whole process of like um, the transcendence of the eminent, um, this is where it comes into play and says, you know, we, we emerge from this, these social aggregates. We're not 
completely cut. So the molar and the molecular are one and the same thing in, in, in the sense that they exist together. And we, you know, we're always a, f- a certain degree of differentiation. What we can do is to choose the direction of this differentiation, but like we're, we're dependent on our point of departure. Yeah, and that's the flip side of that is also why every fantasy is a group fantasy, right? Where uh, primarily there's this undifferentiated whole, and then the process of differentiation is, you know, the effect of social repression in this group, in this book. But you can only interact. But yeah, it's the I'm gesturing towards the whole thing they said a couple paragraphs ago, where everyone is a group, right? You can only interact with the, you know, the imminent plane, right? The real, the material. And and what is good with uh, the 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 further the further they go, the clearer it, it becomes. Desire is not an individual thing; it's always a collective thing, and it passes through us, and we actualize it into one way or the other. So basically, we we're, we're being differentiated as desire, you know, uh, passes through us, and what we do with it. Yeah, I really like your point, both of you. I really like your points there. Especially in terms of like simulation, right? Like, so like, like we're not talking about this in a Baudrillardian in sense, but like to your point, right? In terms of codes and territories, it's not as though we find people just, um, it's like facts for Foucault. We don't just stumble upon facts that are just out there, you know, and don't need anything in the same way. We don't stumble upon people as though they're just always there. We stumble upon people as being produced and in that way, like, uh, occurring like you're saying in, in through differentiation but also like as production as produced through the so um through social desire right and in that sense through desiring production mm-hmm. so and, and that's you know there's there's a huge implication of you know thinking like this and it's really difficult to pass this in philosophy and pass this in social science and i cannot imagine in psychology uh but this this reversal of saying you know everything starts in the collective and it goes through us um, it, it challenges the modes of intervention that we have on the individual and on the social as well. And, you know, if you, if you take uh, contemporary uh, examples, you know, people who are p- pleading for something or another, and you, you pass this into this lens of understanding, you will see how people start from the individual almost all the time and go to the collective. They never do the reverse, except, you know, some revolutionary, uh, groups yeah yeah that's exactly right that's i really like the way that it's it's explained the end right undoing the form of persons and the ego not in behalf of a pre-edipal and differentiated but in behalf of an edipal lines of singularities the desiring machines for there is indeed a sexual revolution which does not concern objects aims or sources but only machinic forms or indices right it's like to your point right we're talking about not only groups, but how groups are formed and produced, right? What they're taking for in terms of indices or loves, the investments there. And to your point, right, like how this all comes about and is produced rather than just starting with it as a given. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the per- the people that is uh, with us um, in into the chat right now she, um, j- just gave me an in, you know, for example, um, when we're talking about, you know, we need to uh, become more schizophrenic instead of neurotic, you know, we need to move into that direction. Uh, 
I think it's a great proposal, but there's a limit to all of this. You know, people in institution or people in like strict necessities, um, you know, uh, they, they cannot afford this kind of, you know, liberating move of saying, you know, I'm going to disregard the neurotic. I'm going to act like straight up schizophrenic. If you do this within an institution, you're you're going to be repressed a lot. And, you know, and into the real world also people who are, you know, poor and, you know, they're into dire situation. And to say, oh, yeah, I'm going to go full schizo, you know, it's maybe not the best. And especially, you know, when when you're part of a minority group and. Um, but, yeah, so that's that's, you know, we, we can explore all of this. And, you know, that's it goes back to against what I was saying in the sense that, you know, uh, for people to defend themselves in society, they will start by the individual because that's the order of society or the the way that the order is presenting themselves. So to plead for themselves, they will plead from the base, the base of the individual uh, interest towards the collective. They will not do it into the same, the other way. The revolutionary though, which is, you know, part of, most of the time, part of a privileged class within uh, a subjugated uh, a minority um, can afford this kind of move of saying, yeah, we, we're, we're leaving this territory, we're doing something else, but this is not you know, affordable for everybody. Yeah, that's exactly it. And that's why they're going through like the paranoiac, right? So like, it's like Foucault, right? Where there's power, there's counter power. In the same way, that's why we just got done discussing like how something can seem to, right? How the, the, the desiring production will break down instead of break through, right? So how like a movement like this uh, upon desire, right? Because this is unconscious in that regard, how it can be uh, go through the paranoiac process upon hitting the body without organs, right? So like to your point, first of all, you can't be schizophrenic all the time and you can't just like negate all the paranoiac about you. They're really clear that this is a delirium. This is an oscillation between the paranoiac and the schizophrenic. In the same way, we have an oscillation between the molecular and molar, right? The perspectives are constantly shifting. It's not a symmetry that we're used to, right? Like this isn't like a mirror and like uh, near perfect reflectivity. The the last part of that line, and it's my favorite line in the paragraph: "Persons are simulacra derived from a social aggregate whose code is unconsciously invested for itself." Second part of that, um, I also think is. Really, uh, how, I, how I interpret that is that these investments, the paranoiac, whatever, however our codes are working, ultimately are about a positive feedback loop, self-replicating machine that uh, kind of continue to produce themselves. So it's as, uh, and they infect that sort of thing around them. So if someone is in that paranoid place, their loves will exhibit this. Their loves will exhibit reactionary or evolutionary. Whatever we do will exhibit these aspects because the codes are by nature self. Yeah, they're, they're reproduced and reproducing. All right. Uh, move on to the, and it'll be the, probably the last uh, paragraph we do. It's a bit of a long one. Uh, we're nearing on the, the fourth and final thesis of schizoanalysis. Therefore, the distinction between two poles of social libidinal investment. Paranoiac, reactionary, fascizing pole, and the schizoid, revolutionary pole. Again, we see no objection to, use, to the use of terms inherited from psychiatry for 
for characterizing social investments of the unconscious, insofar as these terms cease to have a familial connotation that would make, take them, make them into simple projections. And from the moment delirium is recognized as having a primary social content that is immediately adequate. The two poles are defined, the one by the enslavement of production and the desiring machines to the gregarious aggregates that they constitute on a large scale under a given form of power or selective sovereignty, the other by the inverse subordination and the overthrow of power. The one by these molar-structured aggregates that crush singularities, select them, and regularize those that they retain in codes or axiomatics. The other, by the molecular multiplicities of singularities that, on the contrary, treat the large aggregates as so many useful materials for their own elaborations. The one, by the lines of integration and territorialization that arrest the flows, constrict them, turn them back, break them again according to the limits interior to the system, in such a way as to produce the images that come to fill the field of eminence peculiar to this system or this aggregate, the other by lines of escape that follow the decoded and deterritorialized flows, inventing their own non-figurative breaks or schizes that produce new flows, always breaching the coded wall or the territorialized limit that separates them from desiring production. And to summarize all the preceding determinations, the one is defined by subjugated groups, the other by subject groups. It is true that we still run up against all kinds of problems concerning these distinctions. In what sense does the schizoid investment constitute, to the same extent as the other one, a real investment of the social historical field, and not a simple utopia? In what sense are the lines of escape collective, positive, and creative? What is the relationship between two unconscious poles, and what is their relationship with the pre-conscious investments interest? There's so much in here to unpack. Uh, let's, let's take off a little bit at a time, because I think there's one section in here that is, gets a lot more at their sort of full project, but I want to make sure we sort of nail down and break these out one again. Um, so the fourth thesis is, the, is understanding the distinction between the two poles and being able to see those sides. That's final thesis, getting those things. Hey, would paranoiac, reactionary that way, revolutionary this way, what distinguishes them on the paranoiac side? It's these large molar aggregates that crush singularities, the large uh, averages, the laws of averages around people, the way things work, the, the paranoiac, the knowledge, the, the reality. The other is the multiplicities of singularities, the becomings, the constantly changing, the ever, ever switching. Uh, those are the two sort of sides that they're pushing at in that early first part. Anyone want to dive in and do more than that? No, I think that's, oh, yeah. Uh, sorry, I thought I had my mic muted. Uh, let me start over. Yeah, you're, yeah, talk, you, you're talking <laughs> to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, I forgot. It's one of those ones where you raise it up and it'll mute, and I forgot I had it down already. And anyway, yeah, I think you're spot on, though. Like, this first part of the paragraph is just kind of a sum up of what they were going over. And it's a very clear, very nice, like, if you're going to pull out a paragraph to put in just you know, like your notes, right? Like, I'm going to write down the page number for my notes that it's very clear, very sum up -y kind of summary paragraph. Yeah. And it's prepping us. I know it is prepping us for the ultimate goals of the project uh, as we go forward, but it's uh, a really, really nice summation of kind of how they see these two sides. And again, this is not two sides of a coin that are opposing or two parts of a thing. This is the 
basically thinking of orders of magnitude of things on the one side on the multiplicities are the desiring machines the the multiple parts of ourselves on the other sides are the desiring machines but seen at large because we have to we have to process things in aggregates at some point and so those are the molar investments and so it's one giant machine being seen at sort of different levels and also it's interesting because it becomes um somewhat of a tool to understand like social dynamics for example if you pass the the whole you know uh, a position between the all lives matter and the black lives matter right now you know one is being this mo is the expression of the molar aggregate that's saying no 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 no, the system is okay you know like the and the other one is like no no the, at the molecular level you know the, these specific lives matters and there's there's problems within the system so what we're asking is like this this deep transformation so we can actually be considered into the molar aggregate so it's it's really interesting for me because i never saw it that way and i'm just like finding new tools for my own work and i'm like wow okay that that makes sense and but i i was never using these theses as uh, something useful for you know social research or you know individual or collective research yeah no, that's awesome, man. Especially because, right, like we get things as an admixture. So, right, like even with like Black Lives Matter, right, we get, we see desires and we see codes and territorialities, right, that are conditioned both by the paranoiac and the schizophrenic, right, that have gone through processes of these that are being accessed and accessing indices that contain both types of investments, right? So that we find things in admixture. And this is really critical, right? This is how we find them. Um, you know, we began with it. We began in delirium. Uh, one thing I really enjoyed as a specific line that pinged me as I was reading it that made my brain all excited is uh, as I read the whole thing, the one by these molar structured aggregates that crush singularities, select them and regularize those that they retain in codes or axiomatics. The other by the molecular multiplicities of singularities that on the contrary, treat large aggregates as so many useful materials their own elaboration uh, that feels like a really really great way to talk about how uh, our desiring machines utilize the the large stories of the it's really like that phrasing mm -hmm. but it can be also the law it could be also you know the infrastructure how the molecular is using the infrastructure to um actualize itself you know, and then I can go back to my own research about disability, like infrastructure offers means uh, of the of becoming to people with disability. So be, people with disability will invest themselves into the molar aggregate uh, into uh, to change it through the transformation of the infrastructure to actually allow lines of flight for their own molecular becomings. One of the lines I'd like to expand mm -hmm. a little bit on is a. Uh... Uh, one is defined by subjugated groups, the other by subject groups, uh, the one being the molar, the other being molecular. Uh, it, it's an interesting phrasing because it basically means that at any time when we're having that larger discussion of molar concepts or groups of people on average or aggregates, we are talking about subjugated people by nature because they are subjugated. I being part of the molar. It's an interesting phrasing. 
And at the same time, there's always a possibility because everything is revolutionary in, in a sense, like even even the reactionary, like they said earlier, the reactionary can become like a form of revolutionary subject. But so like the subjugated um, groups can at one point, you know, intensify and become uh, subject groups and they can go in either direction. So they can force the molar or they can open lines of becoming outside. All right. Well, with that, I think I'm going to go ahead and close out the session today. Thank all of you for joining us. Reading. Uh, we looks like we will be doing a uh, continuation and maybe even finishing this sometime next week, which will be very exciting. Next Monday, please join us same time, same place for our reading of Antia. Thanks so much.
Thank you.